Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you will have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for more information. My name is Dave Zimmerman, and I'm an Associate Professor of Pharmacy at Duquesne University and Emergency Medicine Pharmacist. And I am excited to introduce our guest today, who is Simon Taxel, and he is a Crew Chief at Pittsburgh EMS. In this episode, we'll be discussing induction of buprenorphine and management of patients with opioid use disorder in the pre-hospital setting. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. So I wanted to kick things off with first, before we talk about the new protocol that you guys are using, how did you initially manage patients that you would get uh, calls for that basically suffered from opioid use disorder? What kind of strategies did you do? Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about this. So the treatment of opioid overdose has been a mainstay of EMS practice as long as I've been involved, which is over 18 years at this point, but it has evolved significantly. And I believe that we're making incredible strides in the right direction. So naloxone, the opioid reversal agent has been around for an incredibly long time and has been a standard part of EMS pharmacopoeia for as long as I can remember and probably much longer than that. And whenever we encountered an opioid overdose, then that medication would be administered intravenously or more recently internasally. The biggest areas of improvement and things that we've been working on, especially in Pittsburgh EMS since about 2017, when the current wave of opioid overdose at mortality and morbidity really started to crash upon us, is that we're trying to optimize our patient care prior to naloxone administration. And what I'm saying is that we found that the more judicious, the smaller the dose of naloxone we administer, the less likely the incidence of adverse outcomes as far as increased agitation, precipitated withdrawal, nausea and vomiting, other problematic post-resuscitation consequences. And so what we've been really working on is encouraging our members and training our members to aggressively provide BLS airway management with oral airway or nasal airway positive pressure ventilation with 100% oxygen as the first line treatment. And we need our paramedics to understand that if you're ventilating someone and can get them oxygen, then you've really solved the life-threatening problem. In a situation where that could be done indefinitely, that patient could be managed like that until the opioids wore off and they woke up on their own. And once we've established oxygenation and ventilation, we want our people to do a complete monitoring EKG, pulse ox, blood pressure, heart rate, and end tidal CO2, and then establish an IV and give a 0.4 milligram intravenous dose of naloxone. And what we've found is that patients that have had a significant period of hypoxia from the overdose, they're also significantly hypercarbic. And in most cases, they don't have the resumption of spontaneous respiration until the hypoxia and hypercarbia has been corrected. And so if you're not monitoring that patient and you're giving them intravenous or your muscular or intranasal naloxone, you may feel like you need to give them a higher dose or 
more doses when in reality that you just haven't corrected the hypoxia hypercarbia problem yet. And so what we found, and I'm actually hoping to get a more formal research project going rather than just my own anecdotes about this, is that no matter what the opioid fentanyl or fentanyl analog that the person is overdosed on, if we correct the hypoxia and hypercarbia problem first, most patients have resumption of spontaneous respiration and a somewhat return to normal mentation with just 0.4 milligrams of IV naloxone. And we know that the lower the dose of naloxone, the less likelihood of any of the associated complications that I mentioned before are to happen so it's better for everybody and most importantly, the patient. And before we introduce the buprenorphine protocol, that's the area that we're really working on the most to optimize our care, as well as we were the first EMS agency in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to provide leave behind naloxone. And so for patients at risk community members, as well as their friends and family, if they wish, we can give them a packet that has internasal naloxone, two doses, as well as some reference material for recovery services and some instructions for how to use it. And most recently, we've added now fentanyl test strips to that packet. Five years ago, that would have been a panacea. Today, not as much. And if we have time, we can talk about that more later. Yeah, absolutely. I know from an emergency medicine standpoint, I'm definitely appreciative of the lower dose of naloxone, having to see them after they come in the ED and manage. And it's awesome to hear about the harm reduction strategies that you mentioned that's been incorporated because as you said a couple of years ago, it's definitely not the case. So I'm glad to see our advancement here in Pittsburgh. So yeah, you brought up the protocol and that's what I'm excited to hear because you know when I first heard it, I was like, oh, pre-hospital buprenorphine induction. I was like, oh, this is going to be pretty intriguing. I want to see how this is done. So can you walk us through the protocol of what you guys do? Yeah. So th this is a really cool program. We're one of the first few EMS agencies in the entire country to be doing this. It was really pioneered by Cooper EMS in New Jersey. It was picked up by Austin Travis County EMS in Texas prior to us. And there may be a few other services that are involved, but those are the ones that are publishing their information. And so our protocol divides the eligible patients into two buckets. If we have a patient that we've reversed an overdose with naloxone and they exhibit signs of precipitated withdrawal, they're eligible for buprenorphine, but also more frequently encountered patients that just render EMS due to their opioid withdrawal symptoms. But there's two separate pathways that we can work off, and they're all based on the patient's presentation and their cow score. And so the clinicians that can give buprenorphine have been trained to evaluate the cow score or the comprehensive opioid withdrawal scale. And then it's a scale that goes from zero up to 36 or greater than 36. And so for us, any patient that has a cow score greater than eight is eligible for enrollment in the program. We have a few exclusions. If they've had methadone within the last 72 hours, if the patient doesn't return to their baseline mental status, if they have other associated medical problems that require resuscitative care, if they're under 18, incarcerated, pregnant, or have a known allergy to buprenorphine. And finally, if they just don't want it, those are all exclusion criteria. But so if they don't fall in one of those categories and they have a cow score greater than or equal to eight, then we can have the discussion with them about buprenorphine induction. And it's interesting in, in my own practice, I found that getting the patients or encouraging the patients to take the buprenorphine is one of the hardest parts of the process. Within the more general recovery community, the use of medication assisted treatment is still highly stigmatized 
prioritized, which is really unfortunate because we know that's the only evidence-based recovery strategy that's available to people. And, you know, I would never discount the stories of anyone who's been able to engage in abstinence-based recovery and has been successful and it's worked for them. Their experiences are totally valid and worthwhile, but statistically, abstinence-only recovery is more likely to lead to overdose and death than no recovery at all. And so even in the community of people who use drugs, that stigma around medication-assisted treatment, buprenorphine and methadone especially, is still pretty significant. So that becomes a barrier that we have to work through. But once the patient consents, then we have to consult with our online medical direction. All our command physicians are ex-wavered, and so they're able to participate in the process. And we start with 16 milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine. If they feel like their mouth is dry, we carry bottles of water so we can let them moisten their mucous membranes first. If they're nauseous, then we can concurrently administer four milligrams of Zofran, either IM or IV, and then reassess after 10 minutes. And if their cow score doesn't improve, or if they're still having symptoms, we can follow that up with a second eight milligram sublingual buprenorphine dose for a total of 24 milligrams. At that point, it is the patient's choice if they would like to be transported to the hospital or if they'd like to remain at home. And regardless of our transport decision, then we have a contact with the Pittsburgh Poison Center and the UPMC Toxicology Telemedicine Bridge Clinic. And right there sitting in the ambulance, whether we're going to the hospital or they're going on their way, we do a warm handoff. We contact the bridge clinic and they set up an appointment for follow-up for that patient within 24 hours. And that's a phone line that answers 24-7, 365. We don't have any data yet publicly available on what the follow-up with those appointments are and how these patients that we've given pre-hospital buprenorphine to are doing long-term but that's going to be a really important piece to know about the efficacy of this program. That's awesome. I'm glad you definitely touched on the dose in there because I think something that we're definitely learning getting this life-saving therapy to patients, it's not a one size fits all. And you mentioned, especially patients that are hesitant to using BUP, that's where in a more controlled environment, I want to say the ED is controlled, but certainly a little bit more controlled than pre-hospital setting. We can do like a micro dosing or Bernie's method and kind of titrate that up. But it's impressive the initial 16 milligram dose followed by an eight milligram if they still have symptoms. And we do the same cows level of eight to initiate therapy. With that, I know it's only been out there a couple of months now and you guys said data is still being collected, but you know, anecdotally, how have you felt the new protocol has gone? And I guess with that, do you find it's providing a better overall care to the patient? I've had some really good experiences with it and some not so great experiences. The first one, and to me, the all-star example of why this program has value is that we encountered a woman who was self-abstinent from opioids for about three days and had planned on going to inpatient rehabilitation program that day, but was experiencing such severe withdrawal symptoms that she called 911. This was like February of last year. She was in her car on a snowy roadway in the middle of nowhere and just couldn't drive anymore. And so we met her right there on the side of the road and we evaluated her. We talked to her we did the bup induction and the Zofran. She got the full 24 milligrams. Her symptoms basically resolved. The rehab that she had had a bed at and she was going to is a rehab, one of the few that would participate in medication-assisted treatment. 
And so she decided to go and continue on to her pre-planned rehab admission later in that day. And I think that, A, that the patient's symptoms were resolved. In that immediate moment, that's a win. You know, we helped that person. And then she ended up going to a facility that was specific for her medical needs rather than the ER, which is a catch-all. And a lot of great care is done in the ER. But let's be honest, if a patient who needs recovery services goes to a recovery center that meets their needs as opposed to an ER, that's probably a better choice, right? To me, that's exactly why and the value of this program. Not only did we help the patient, but we diverted them to, or they were able to divert to a facility that was much more equipped to handle their needs than the ER. So it, it was a win at all levels. And an experience where things didn't go so well, and you mentioned microinduction, and I think this is where that comes in, is we had a patient who again called us because he had withdrawal symptoms. And he was very clear that he'd been opioid abstinent for five days. And so well within our protocol for the patients that have an overdose, they have to have at least 24 hours of opioid abstinence before we can give them buprenorphine. But he actually got substantially worse after the 24 milligrams of bup. His cow score went from like 15 to 30. It was clear that he was experiencing precipitated withdrawal. And so I think there's a couple of possibilities. One is that he was ingesting opioids and didn't even realize it because of the contaminated nature of the drug supply. The second is that there's some evidence out there that people who use fentanyl regularly can experience precipitated withdrawal from bup even after much longer periods of abstinence. And that's where the microinduction framework comes from. I think that we're going to have to figure out ways to be slightly more judicious about who we enroll in this program because we definitely don't want to make people worse. And the microinduction strategy just doesn't really fit the EMS model. Like we have to make this encounter in a half hour or less. We want to help as many people as we can. We don't want to harm anybody. And I think we're going to see more folks who use fentanyl and its analogs need that microinduction as opposed to this more standard induction strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And even micro induction isn't always tailored to the ED because I mean, it can take, you know, one, two days in some patient to get that dose titrated up. But the thing is, you're getting it on board. And again, you're giving them these life-saving therapy. And I definitely do appreciate if you can divert a patient from having to go to the ED to a facility. I know uh, as an EM pharmacist, I definitely appreciate that. Not that we don't want to help patients in ED, but certainly it's uh, ED crowding is a huge issue. And you touched base on this a little bit with BUP not being a one-size-fits-all, but with the protocol, is there anything that you would want to change about it currently or anything that you think can be improved upon? Again, just based upon your experience. I really don't think so. Just because the micro-induction strategy, I don't think it can be done in the EMS environment. And so we're going to have to get better evidence about who's best suited for micro-induction versus a standard induction. If we could legalize and regulate the supply of drugs and eliminate the fentanyl substantially from our illicit drug supply and get people to actually use heroin again, then I think this induction strategy would work much better. And I know to some of your listeners, it probably sounds counterintuitive to say that we would rather have people using heroin. But the reality is, is that the biggest problem that we face right now is that the illicit drug supply is poisoned and we don't know what's in it. And if we could simply get a safe supply of pharmaceutical grade opioids for people to use, I estimate that the number of deaths from opioid overdose could be reduced by as much as 70%.
I'm glad you hit that point because it's one of those things with the supply. You don't really see heroin itself very much anymore. It's fentanyl and fentanyl analogs, as you said. And, you know, with the scheduling of some of these fentalogs, now they're going to like pharmaceutical grade fentanyl derivatives that were researched because everything's kind of got scheduled now. So there's just a huge mixture of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. And it's a mix throughout the country too. You know, there's data looking at the illicit opioid supply tested in Philly compared to Pittsburgh, and it was drastically different. And we're, you know, just a couple hours away from each other. There's also, we're starting to see a lot of xylazine, nitazine, and some of those other problematic substances that don't respond to Mm -hmm. naloxone. And we're doing a lot of continuing education with our clinicians to be critical with these patients that if they find someone who's unresponsive or obtunded and they give them a dose of naloxone and their respiratory effort and rate improves, but their mental status doesn't, it doesn't mean give more naloxone because at this point, the likelihood is that there's a concurrent issue with another substance in their system, such as xylazine, that doesn't cause as much respiratory depression, but will keep them obtunded. And then the other issue is that we're seeing an increasing number of overdoses among people who didn't knowingly use opioids, especially cocaine and street-pressed Xanax. I know in the pre-hospital environment, if you find someone who presents with the opioid toxidrome previously, and you know you treat them with naloxone and they wake up and then they said, well, I didn't do any opioids, then you would just assume that they were lying or, or being intentionally deceptive. But we are seeing a growing population of patients and even call them weekend warriors, people who don't necessarily have opioid use disorder, any sort of substance use disorder, but might do a little cocaine or recreationally use drugs on the weekends. And however we might feel about it morally, the reality is, is that seven years ago, 10 years ago, doing a little cocaine on a Saturday night was a relatively low risk drug activity. But today that's very, very different. And we've had now two what I would describe as mass death events in Pittsburgh, where there was multiple fatalities from people using what they thought was cocaine, but it turned out to be fentanyl. And so that's another problem that we have to address. Absolutely. And I know we don't have time today to talk about xylazine, but that's a huge issue, especially here in the Northeast. Those that aren't familiar, it's basically, it's not you know approved for humans. It's a veterinary anesthetic, but it's going to mimic basically clonidine toxicity in one where you would need a lot larger doses of naloxone, like 10 milligrams or more. But the issue is we can't rapidly identify it or what else, you know, is in the system. So I definitely like your strategy. And again, instructing personnel that you do see an improvement in breathing, but not mental status. Again, there's probably something else on board that's causing their sedation. But again, ABCs are the most important thing and just make sure, you know, you're protecting the airway. For the lay rescuer, the community member that has access to naloxone, when in doubt, give naloxone 100% give whatever you feel you need to. I would never want a lay rescuer to feel like we were discouraging them from giving naloxone, but among trained paramedics with equipment and the appropriate monitoring devices, naloxone is not our first line treatment. It's Mm -hmm. basic airway management, oxygenation, ventilation, and monitoring, and then giving naloxone. But for us, we can really essentially solve the problem without it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you clarified that. I mean, it's great advice. I would echo that 100%. It's a life-saving therapy in that situation. We can manage things afterwards, you know, withdrawal and all that type of stuff, but it's not going to harm somebody if there's not an opioid on board. I know we don't have a lot of time, but you mentioned from a harm reduction standpoint, fentanyl testing. Can you just quickly say what you guys are doing there? So we have now included fentanyl test strips in the same kit 
with the leave behind naloxone we got special permission to do it but here unfortunately in pennsylvania it's still considered drug paraphernalia so they remain technically illegal and so that was problem number one and that's why we didn't start doing it five years ago when it would have been the most impactful. And so for those who don't know, a fentanyl test strip is like a glucometer strip. Some of the powdered drugs are dissolved in liquid, and then the test strip is dipped in it, that it'll give a positive or negative, whether there's fentanyl present or not. And the reason why I said it wasn't a panacea and it would have been a more impactful five years ago is that today, the reality is that most of the people who are regularly injecting drugs know that there's fentanyl in what they're injecting. They know that there's very little to no actual heroin in the illicit drug supply and that it is mostly fentanyl and its derivatives. So for that community, the fentanyl test strips don't give them information they don't already have. And unfortunately, there's nothing on that test strip that gives a concentration. And so the most dangerous part beyond just the presence of fentanyl in the illicit drug supply is that it's highly inconsistent. And so a person may buy a bundle of stamp bags do a tester out of the first bag, have it be fine. And then whether it's that bag or the next one out of the same bundle, inject the same amount and have it cause a fatal overdose. The knowledge that the people in the community need right now isn't the presence or absence of fentanyl. They know it's there. And it's what's the concentration in each dose that they're preparing. And that's a much harder thing to derive. And then the people that the fentanyl test strips would be most impactful for right now are casual drug users, people who are using street benzos and cocaine, we have not found yet a good way to engage with that community and encourage them to test their drugs for fentanyl before they use them. And, you know, just realistically, if you have someone who just got off work and they're hanging out with friends and they're going to snort a little bit of cocaine, the likelihood that we're going to be able to convince them to take some of their drugs, dissolve it in water, and then test it before they do it, it seems relatively unlikely. I think we should be you know, working with groups like Dance Safe Pittsburgh or other groups that are out in the nightclubs and trying to encourage people to use more safely. Being realistic, I'm not sure what our attraction is going to be in that community. I got you. And I definitely like a harm reduction strategy and there's a lot to it. I know we can't get into it today because we're running out of time, but I think we definitely need to have a conversation about that on maybe a follow-up podcast if ASHP will have us. I want to, again, thank you, Simon, for talking about a great topic and basically displaying what all goes on in the pre-hospital environment that pharmacists don't always have a great understanding. And reminder for our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. Please note that credit for this podcast expires two years after the date this podcast is published. Finally, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check the member exclusive offerings on the ASHP website, including resource centers for ambulatory care, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit and forums, such as the ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider, and we'll see you next time. And thank you, Simon, again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. 
Join us next time on ASHP Official.